Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. This month's Church Times book club choice is Of Stone and Sky by Meryn Glover, a novel about the disappearance of a shepherd in the Highlands. On this book club podcast, Ian Bradley, who has written an essay about the book in this week's Church Times, interviews the author. Off Stone and Sky is published by Berlin and is available from the Church Times bookshop for £8.99. Merrin, this is a big book, 320 pages, with a, a big range chronologically spanning more than 60 years. Um, what got you into writing it? Well, um, in one sense, it, it began in the middle of the night, actually the summer solstice 2013, when I was woken, I guess, by the light at about 3 a.m. and couldn't go back to sleep because I live in the Highlands of Scotland, obviously, so we get so we get a lot of uh, light up here in the midsummer. And after lying there in bed for about an hour with this idea pressing on me, I just got up, went downstairs and started to write it down. And that was the the opening ideas for um, of Stone and Sky, although at the time the working title was The Shortest Night because that was the night of the year that I began it, but also the night of the year that is sort of the emotional climax of the story. And I still have that sheet of notes um, that I wrote, you know, 4 a.m., 22nd of June, 2013, The Shortest Night, and it just begins a story, a land, a people. Wonderful. Um, you, you mentioned you live in the Highlands and the, the book set in the, the Cairngorms National Park. Um, how important is that setting in the book and in the story? Yeah, well, absolutely central. Um, I'd been living here for about seven years, I guess, at the time when I started writing it. Um, and so I was very much immersed in this place. And a sense of place is very important in all of my writing, um, which we may come on to that in the discussion later on, because I've moved many, many times. So a sense of where I am and coming to grips with the landscape and a people and a culture uh, has been the story of my life, really. So I was very, very interested in what what is this place and what makes it tick uh, and this community tick. Because uh, it's actually quite a diverse community in lots of ways, much more so than many Highland communities, partly because it is on the A9, which is this arter- arterial road north. Um, and because it's in the National Park, there are a lot of different people that come and go for a huge range of reasons. So, yeah, it's a place that was fascinating me, that was increasingly getting under my skin. I guess I was getting under the skin of the place as well. And... There was a sense, as in those opening words that I wrote in the middle of the night, that it was always a story about the land. It was always about this landscape, its nature, its wildlife, um, its living presences, uh, including its people. Yes, you've just said it's a story about the the land and and the theme of of highland land use and land reform features very prominently in it, doesn't it? Is that something you yourself feel very passionately about? Yes, I do. And I, I, and increasingly so the longer I've lived here. Um, they were already ideas that I, I was I cared about and I was very aware of. 
um, living here and I'd done some reading about uh, and very much just could see how much people's everyday realities were affected by these issues of land ownership, land stewardship, land use, um, questions around regeneration, agriculture, um, the ecology, all of those kinds of things profoundly affect people on an everyday level here. They're not just ideologies, they are realities for people. But in the process of writing the book and needing to do a whole lot more research, I definitely learned a great deal more about those those issues and I suppose came to feel even more passionately about them as time went on. The land is is there as a, as a kind of constant theme and background, but essentially it's a story of of one extended family who have their origins in the the sheep rearing and the crofting communities of of this part of the Highlands. C- can you tell us something about the the family, its its central characters, and and how you conceived and developed them? Sure. So in the middle of the night, what woke me up was this shepherd who in a sense kind of stalked into my imagination and demanded that his story be told. So he was there right from the beginning in those in those opening uh, lines. After the ones I've already read, it goes on, this place of beauty and history, of loss and hope, a shepherd. Uh, so he was there right from the beginning. That's Colvin, our central character. And then almost immediately beside him was this younger brother who in many ways is the is the prodigal and it is quite a lot like that relationship the old brother Colvin is the one who stayed and looked after the farm and the younger one has gone off to make his fortune in the city so they were there really right from the beginning and then as I started to write because it was Colvin's story I went right back to his birth and so of course immediately at his birth you have his mother and this character of Agnes really leapt to life And things about her literally just emerged in the writing that she was um, a Highland traveller. So immediately then uh, I was very fascinated by the difference that was emerging between this very settled sheep farming family and her as this traveller. And in some ways, I suppose it's a kind of resonance for me as having had a very nomadic upbringing, but in a very different circumstance and culture. So she became a very important character, really, as as she appeared in that birth scene. And I realized that she would become part of the story, but also realized that I, I started by thinking this was going to be just a contemporary novel and not move around too much in time, just sort of start at the beginning and keep going forward. Um, but I very rapidly realized that a story about the land and relationships with the land needed to take account of the history. And the ways in which I wanted to explore that history really was to go back through the story of this family, these characters, their real lives and experiences. So we've got Colvin, we've got his mother, and then we've got her husband, Gid, um, who at the time of the birth is is drunk in his bed. And he is a very troubled and broken character. And we come to understand a little bit about the damage that has been done to him through the course of the story. Uh, And then we learn a little bit about his own parents and and their relationship to the landscape. We discover his sister, who's Beulah, and uh, she works at the big house. So that's the other kind of uh, important family in the story is the the Laird and his family, the Laird Edgar McIntosh. 
So again, Sister Beulah works as initially sort of maid and then housekeeper at the big house. Her husband, Archie, is the gamekeeper. Uh, but she's very much kind of wedded to the big house and that family in some ways hold her loyalty more than her own blood relations. And then they take in this foundling, this foster child, Mo, uh, who ultimately becomes the, the primary narrator of the novel. Um, and her history and who her family really are becomes one of the big questions of the novel as well. But she becomes very close to Colvin and Sorley. They become like brothers to her. And, and Agnes, the, Colvin's mother, uh, is becomes like a mother to her as well. So then it goes and grows from there because the novel is very much about a community as well as being about the central characters, the other people of this village and this Highland estate, they come into the story and they're important to it. <laughs> yes, they're, they're a wonderfully drawn set of characters. But uh, as you say, in a sense, um, Colvin Munro, the, the shepherd, is, is in some senses the central character. And his disappearance is is a key motive in the story. It's how the story begins and and ends. Um, and indeed, you you punctuate the whole book with with clues, signs, as they're called, about his his disappearance. I'm I'm interested in how you came to frame the book around this this one event. Yes. So, like I said, he was there from the beginning. It's his story, but in a very strange way. Although he is the central character and it's about him, it's also about his absence. It's about his disappearance. And in a sense, it's like he becomes the, the singularity at the, 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 the heart of the black hole around which everything else orbits, all of the other characters and all of the action of the story, because it's looking at what were all of the forces that drove him away. And... Early on, I, I was looking at his character and I'd imagined that he had taken his own life because that is a tragedy that occurs all too often in farming communities where the farmer is unable to reconcile all of the forces on their lives, all of the pressures, the demands, uh, the, the impossible web that they're caught in and it becomes too much, becomes overwhelming. And I know people in the community affected by that. But as time went on, I felt very strongly that that wasn't what happens to him. It's more that he takes his life away, that he, he is overwhelmed by and unable to reconcile all of these forces. But rather than it being a suicide, it is a kind of redemption for him because he leaves, he walks away, literally. But what he walks to, what becomes of him, in a sense, is the sort of central mystery of the novel. But it's not a suicide. Uh, and that became quite important to me. And But he becomes the lost shepherd. And so it becomes the central question. Why did he go? And it's not just a question for the narrator and for his younger brother, Sorley, who is the other narrator, but it becomes the question that the entire community has to deal with. Everybody has some sense of complicity in this, some sense of guilt, some sense of responsibility, and it becomes their self-examination, their process of interrogating 
what their role was in his life, in the life of the community, in their relationships with this landscape, and what they have contributed to this tragedy. And then and these sort of questions, did they really know him and did they love him enough? That's very interesting. The one figure we haven't really talked about yet is is Colvin's sister, Mo, who's the narrator of of much of the book. And in many ways, I think the, the strongest and the most sympathetic character. Tell me something about her and what drew you to her, because she does emerge, certainly for me, as as probably the the strongest character in the book. Yes, and, and I think everybody loves Mo, <laughs> uh, as as do I. Um, it was good to spend time with her in, in writing the book. But interestingly, she wasn't there from the beginning. She emerged over time. And part of that was in my struggling to find the best way to tell the story. What, what would be the devices, the structures? Who would be the narrator? Because although it was... Colvin's a central character. There is this sense in which we are very rarely seeing things from his point of view. I think there's really only one chapter where we do see it from his point of view, because that that whole sense of not really knowing him and not understanding him enough was quite important to the story. So Mo emerged gradually. And kind of looking back through my notebook where I scribbled ideas, talking to myself in my notes as it was developing, it wasn't till a whole lot later, uh, about eight months into it, that I thought, oh, I think this story could be told by the bartender because everybody talks to the bartender, certainly in, in my local village pub. And all different kinds of people come there and had this notion of the bar is like the confessional. And But then it was a lot later. It wasn't till over over a year later that I noticed in my book I have idea the bartender was the local minister resigned that post bought the pub so the sense of of that journey for her that obviously took a while to come together for me and I don't really know even when the name Mo first appeared or the sense of her I think she she just kind of grew through a whole number of different ideas but became in so many ways like a central character herself and her story where where she comes from, who her family are, her people are, what her place is in this place becomes an increasingly important part of the of the novel as well, because there's a mystery around her birth. Yes, we won't we won't uh, give a spoiler as to who it is who buys the uh, the pub for her. But as you say, she's a fascinating figure because you you have her undergoing a, a conversion experience, a profound religious conversion experience in in York. And as you say, she she ends up as a Church of Scotland minister, rather sort of surprisingly, I think, not least for her, and then falls out with the the institutional church. And you have quite a lot about her kind of clash with the with the Church of Scotland. Was that something that that came out of your your own observation or indeed experience of the Church of Scotland? You you write about it as though you you know quite a lot about it. <laughs> yes, well, I've uh, with my nomadic life, I've been part of lots and lots of different churches over the years uh, of all different stripes, and that's been a real gift and privilege and real insight into the many colours of the Christian Church. But uh, with Mo, you know, she had come from such a hard start in life. She was this foundling, this foster child, the ugly one. 
the outsider. She's a real tough tomboy and a sense of her really having to fight for her life, to fight for her place a lot of the time. And Agnes, this sort of foster mother figure, was this figure of grace and shelter for her um, as she was growing up. And Agnes had faith. But apart from that, she didn't, Mo doesn't really engage with faith in church as she's growing up. And but she's brought to faith by someone who has made the journey from a from a ruined life to to one of wholeness. And it's his story that changes hers. So there's a sense in which she was always going to focus on those kinds of folk in her own ministry, those who were outsiders, those who had struggled and 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 been abused and suffered um, and were motherless in, in some ways. So um so when she comes to this little rural village church, initially she initiates a kind of revival and, and there is a real um, growth and she's really excited by that. But then um, things kind of begin to plateau. And if I thought maybe the best way to answer your question was just to read the few sentences where she describes her transition out of that traditional church structure. She says, and what I noticed is that most of the people out there who are hungry and thirsty for life, do not look for it in a church. They believe this well dried up long ago or claim it never was a well, just a deep, empty pit that needy, needy people fall into and can't escape. But who needs a well when you have a loch and a river and clear springs rising from mountains? The water of life is not hidden down a dark hole, but running free and wild and open in the land. The kingdom of heaven is among you. So she gets this call, as she says, to the sheep outside the fold. Yes, very, very powerful, I think, that. And of course, as you've said, in some senses, the pub, the bar becomes her church and her pulpit. And the book is is absolutely full of uh, prayers. I mean, it begins with a, with a prayer, really, from Mo about, about Colvin, full of prayers of biblical references. Um, you, you've already mentioned Colvin as the lost shepherd. There's a very powerful image early on in the book where you describe April as a Pentecostal month, if ever there was one, swinging from ecstasy to exorcism in the spirit's whim. Is that reflective of your own faith, that that very strong um, strain running right through the book of, of religious references, prayers, biblical quotations? Yes, um, undoubtedly, the, the Bible it has been the foundational text of my life, uh, both from from you know childhood, um, but uh, as a, as an ongoing uh, source of life for me. But also of my writing and my reading, I in many ways the scriptures are are a foundational text for English literature. Um, perhaps less and less so over time as people are less biblically literate, but certainly. Uh, I mean, I remember at university, our literature lecturer, who was a fierce atheist, but just saying, if you wanted to understand English literature, you needed to know Greek mythology and the Bible, <laughs> because they they are these kind of underpinning texts of our culture in many ways. So I am very primed to biblical allusions, to recognizing those themes and those threads that run through our, our culture, I guess, as well as our, our literature. Um, but in particular for this novel, structurally and thematically, um, it draws from biblical symbols around land and freedom, um, with particularly metaphors of, of exodus, exile, the promised land, 
Um, Mo is is a kind of Moses figure, <laughs> although, although I had called her Mo before I realized that that's sort of who she was, although she's a slightly failed Moses figure. She doesn't quite get the people to move in the way she, she wishes. And there are references to, to 10 contemporary plagues. Um, there's the Ecclesiastes motif of a time for everything that runs through it. And then the use of the traditionally sacred numbers of 40, 12, 7 and 3. And a lot of referring back to the old Celtic church traditions in Scotland, which we received particularly through the heritage of Agnes, this Highland traveller, um, where those Gallic blessings that so often embrace the Trinity and understandings of uh, of nature and very close relationships with, with landscape and wildlife that those come through the text quite a lot as well, and particularly drawn from the, the Carmen Gadolica that um, some listeners may be aware of, which was a as a collection of these Gallic um, prayers, charms, blessings, curses that were, were very much in use across you know the Highlands and Islands um, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. So um, those those are woven through the text as well as part of the kind of background Christian culture uh, of this community from, from a long, long time ago. But ultimately, I guess, also exploring through the book that the idea of the bond, you know, the bond that can be both um, a shackle or a profoundly nourishing connection. And I guess that overarching question for the characters of the story is how can I know love and be free? Yes, I, I was struck a, a few minutes ago, you mentioned the Exodus theme and the, the promised land theme, and you've you've talked a number of times in, in this interview, Marion, about your own nomadic upbringing. I mean, I gather you you grew up in, in somewhat remote and exotic lands when you're, where your parents were Wycliffe uh, Bible translators. Has that been a, an important influence both in your life and, and your writing? And perhaps you could tell us a bit about it. It's fascinating. Yeah, uh, absolutely central again to, to who I am as a person and as a writer. Um, my parents' work took them across Nepal, India and Pakistan, um, primarily, or certainly in the years that, that I was growing up. I was born in Kathmandu and spent quite a number of years of my childhood in a in a village in the foothills of the Himalayas in, in Nepal, um, where my parents were working amongst a, an ethnic group there, uh, doing um, literacy, linguistics, and Bible translation. So living amongst other cultures and languages and faiths um, has always been a part of my life. Uh, where I went to school in North India from age nine to 18 was an international school where you were sharing a room with people of other faith. So, you know, my Muslim roommate would be unrolling her prayer mat uh, on, on the floor of the room, um, you know, and, and everyone was seeking to follow their their traditions, their faith um, or, or no faith, as the case might be, um, in very close proximity and community together. And that inevitably creates tensions, but also some really powerful opportunities for understanding and for, for growth. So that was an enormous privilege and gift for me to be brought up in those contexts. Um, I, I guess also because my parents were, were, were Bible translators, that knowledge of the, the scriptures was something uh, wide and deep from, from very early on. Um, but also with that, a curiosity about other people's sacred texts and the ways in which people's faith and belief 
motivates and shapes them, whether that's within a religious tradition or not. And so those those have been the abiding themes, I think, throughout um, all my writing, whether that's been short stories or novels or plays or poetry, is a lot to do with that sense of belonging, of place, of identity, culture, belief, um, and who, who we are as people in our relationships with all of these things. And I wonder how important wild places are in a sense too. I mean, as we're having this conversation, your background is a, is a wonderful uh, picture of um, what I take to be your your back garden, all there, the highlands, the Cairngorms, but it could almost be Kathmandu. And I just wonder, are you drawn? I mean, it, it looks very like I've never been to Kathmandu, but it looks rather like um, Nepal or the or the Himalayas. Um, are you are you particularly drawn to wild places? Do you think? Yes, yes. And for listeners, uh, that my Zoom background here at the moment is is the Cairngorms, or particularly the sort of feshy hills of the Cairngorms in in snow and uh, Loch Inch completely frozen over. Um, so, like Nepal, I suppose in in terms of beautiful mountains and. Yes, mountains are are very much very important to me. Uh, loved them for as long as I can remember, and a sense that relationship, as you say, with with the the beautiful earth, is something very important to me, and something that again I explore in, in a lot of my writing, and so, something I suppose that comes out very importantly in of Stone and Sky is the need for healing, um, both of ourselves and and of the land and how those two are so closely bound up together that we can't have the wholeness of ourselves without the wholeness of this earth. Um, and the wholeness of the earth needs us as people to be stronger and more compassionate and, and more, more loving and um, more engaged. So I'm not an expert by any means in anything to do with ecology or wildlife I'm still I'm sort of the eternal beginner I think <laughs> but I suppose I still live in that sense of really childlike wonder with what is there what we have the gift to live on in this earth and a very strong motivation to to protect it to see it thrive you you've mentioned uh, healing and wholeness there. And I'm just wondering, summing up the book, whether you would say that it, it really has an underlying spiritual or, or religious theme. Is it, is it ultimately uh, about redemption, do you think? Yes, I think that would be a good way of summing it up about that journey to being made whole again and how difficult that journey is and how different for different people, but how vital for all of us, but also that that's not ever going to be just the journey of the individual. That is a redemption comes within the context of a community. It comes within relationship with one another, with the landscape that sustains us, with uh, the divine and although we walk it in some senses as an individual, um, we only ever find it um, in relationship. Well, thank you very much indeed, Marion Glover, for, for talking to us and expounding on your, your fascinating new book of Stone and Sky. Uh, on this podcast, we, we normally ask authors to, to recommend another new book that they've read and, and, and found interesting. So could, could you do that? Yeah, um, gladly. 
Um, one that I recommend, uh, obviously, for of Stone Sky, I ended up reading a lot about um, farming. <laughs> uh, even something like uh, 200 Years of Farming in Sutherland was one of the bestsellers that I tapped into, which is very interesting. But the recent book that I would strongly recommend is called Rooted, How Regenerative Farming Can Change the World by Sarah Langford. Um, and because it's a really in-depth, compassionate, wise look at lots of different farmers' approaches to the to the land, uh, and I thoroughly recommend it. Thank you very much. I, I've just been reading James Nochte's latest thriller, uh, which I think is called The Spy Over the Water. It's, it's about um, a British ambassador in the 1980s in Washington who has a background in spying. It's particularly set at the height of the Irish Troubles, and actually it, it's got slight similarities with uh, of stone and sky because part of it is set in in highland perthshire where where this chap hails from and there's a rather dramatic scene where his his brother is attacked by the the ira in a remote um, uh, house about 50 miles north of pitlochry but it's it's a good read and uh, a real page turner as they say yes well not too near you but uh, but it's 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 an interesting one but thank you very much thank you listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk if you are not yet a subscriber to the church times you can try your first 10 issues for just 10 pounds you'll get the paper delivered to your door every friday plus full access to our website and digital archive go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more